We are continuing this morning in our study in the book of Matthew. And so if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin with verse 1. That is on page 809 in your pew Bible. So if you want to grab that black Bible in front of you, that's page 809. You want to follow along and keep it open. Because we, if you're new here, we go verse by verse through the text. And so you're going to want to be able to reference that. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Glass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word this morning, and we begin to hear from our Savior, would you begin to transform our hearts from his message to us? Just as he was speaking to those disciples up on the mountain, let us be those disciples who are listening, intent, with open ears, in hearts that are moldable by you. Father, let us, let us hear this new and fresh as if we've never heard it before. And let us hear your word as you meant it to be understood. As instruction for the followers of Christ. We, we pray that you would speak this morning through your word. Get me out of the way and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. Well, this is that, that time of year, isn't it, when there are a lot of changes in administrations. There have just been several new U.S. congressmen and, and women sworn into the Senate and the House. New governors are taking office. New local representatives are beginning their work. NFL teams that didn't make the playoffs are reorganizing. But something will remain constant in each of those organizations. Regardless of, of who comes in to replace the outgoing administrations, the things that they do, they won't change. At least not that much. But politicians will still use political means to write laws and gain influence. Football teams will still be playing football according to football rules. And the teams with the most points will still win. Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. 
a new year, a new age, a new, a new regime doesn't really fundamentally change anything under the sun. But, but when the kingdom of heaven broke into the earthly realm, something different happened. Something new came from beyond the sun. We, we first met, as we're studying Matthew, we met this king of this otherworldly kingdom at his birth. And already we are learning, even now, that the king is totally different than any other earthly king that's come before him. He's a servant king, isn't he? he? He's a king who's willing to identify himself with his people, their sickness, their poverty, their spiritual oppression, and most of all, their sin. And this week, as we begin to hear this king teach, we start to see that it's not just the king who's different. The expectations, the the outlook, the the rules for success, everything is different in this kingdom that he's bringing with him. Well, last we saw, as we were following this king, Jesus, he was proclaiming the good news. Proclaiming the good news of the coming kingdom and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if you remember that. And he's being followed by people from all over the region. And that gets us up to chapter 5, verse 1. So in, in verse 1, these people are following. Jesus sees the crowds, and he goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, Matthew tells us, his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him, not the crowds, the disciples. And then in verse 2, Matthew tells us that he begins to speak. Now don't ignore these little details. Okay? When Matthew speaks to us, when Matthew writes to us, he doesn't waste words. So he, he is telling us something when he tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to speak. He's showing us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law from God, and then he went back down to give it to the people. And if you read the rest of chapter 5, and I I hope you're reading ahead, then you know Jesus is going to re-give or retell the law from this mountain. Unlike Moses who goes back down the mountain, Jesus stays on the mountain to give us the law. Like Moses, Jesus is a deliverer. He's the he's, he's the, the one that God uses to redeem his people. But unlike Moses, he is actually God. So, so the people come up to him on the mountain to receive his teaching. So what we have here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are what we traditionally call the Beatitudes. You've been in church, you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this phrase, the Beatitudes. Now Jesus doesn't use that word Beatitude. Neither do the Gospel writers. All it is, if you've ever wondered what it meant, it's just an early Latin translation of the word that Matthew uses for blessed or happy. And it's sort of stuck with what we call these teachings here. And it's stuck for several hundred years. We could call them macarisms, which is actually closer to what Matthew would have said. But then when we heard this, we would get hungry thinking of little overpriced French cookies, wouldn't we? The Beatitudes are like Jesus' introduction to his sermon on the mount. They, they are eight 
otherworldly attitudes that we need in order to thrive as citizens of his kingdom. A kingdom that is already broken in to the worldly kingdoms, but has not yet been consummated. It's not yet complete. These, the Beatitudes, they're the core values. The core values that we need to even even begin to grasp Jesus' understanding of the law. We, we could say also that they are, the Beatitudes are the necessary postures of the heart. Postures of the heart for people whose citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, but who still live on the earth. To, to better understand these teachings that we're about to receive, we, we have to see that they have a past, a present, and a future element to them. And if you're trying to follow along in your notes, I changed the notes. I'm sorry. Uh, it usually happens Saturday night. Uh, but they have a, the, the, the Beatitudes have a past, a present, and a future element to, to them. The, the past element is much of what we've been learning through Matthew's gospel. We've seen this over and over and over again. The Beatitudes fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Shouldn't be a surprise by now. We should see that, that Matthew and, and as he's observing Jesus' ministry to us, is showing us over and over again, Jesus reveals Old Testament prophecy. He fulfills what has been expected. What's happening with with these these Beatitudes is Jesus is taking ideas that we were introduced to, mostly in Isaiah, but also in the Psalms, and he's showing how they are fulfilled in the coming heavenly kingdom. For instance, look at at verse 3 in our text. In in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you don't have to turn there. You can look on the screen. But but look at Isaiah 61 with me. I'm going to read it for you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And and then in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, he says that he's there to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And and then in verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of, what? A, a faint spirit. A poor spirit. The, the poor in spirit that Matthew tells us about, that Jesus is teaching about, are, are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound, those who know that they are helpless in themselves. They are those who are faint in spirit. I, Isaiah says that when this passage is fulfilled, when the Christ comes, these people will be shown the Lord's favor. They'll have a garment of praise. Their mourning will turn to gladness. You see what Jesus is doing? By by drawing from Isaiah 61 as an introduction to his teaching, he's saying, he's the one. He's the one who's fulfilling this passage. Now, Now, we've already been clued in to this reality, and I hope you've seen it. At his baptism, Jesus is the one with the Spirit of the Lord on him. 
He's the one anointed by the Spirit. He's the one bringing this good news of the coming kingdom. It's not just Isaiah 61, though. It's not just Isaiah prophecies that are fulfilled. In Psalm 37, we have something similar. David, that old king that Jesus comes to be the next of. David is encouraging God's people, and he's saying, don't worry when it seems like all of the wicked around you are prospering. Don't let that get you down. And then David encourages his people. He says, God's going to be faithful. He's going to stay true to his promises. And then in Psalm 37, 11, look what David says. But the meek shall inherit the land. Now look at Matthew. Look at verse 5 of Matthew. Blessed are who? The meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. You see the parallels? They're pretty obvious. In Psalm 24, the the one we read as our call to worship this morning, verses 4 through 6, David says that he who has a pure heart will receive what from the Lord? A blessing from the Lord. And he goes on to say that these are the ones, they are the ones who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Well, that lines up with our passage, doesn't it? Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See what Jesus is doing? He's drawing from these these old psalms and these old prophecies and he's drawing from the way that people were expecting God to make himself known among his people. And he's saying, I'm here. I'm here. My, My kingdom is coming, but I'm here now. You can learn from me now. You can put your hope in me now. These the past promises are being fulfilled in Christ. And, and the Beatitudes, they uncover that reality for us. Everything points to Christ. Now, why does that matter? This isn't just like an academic trick. This isn't just me showing you that I've read Isaiah and Psalms. The people hearing Jesus teach the people reading Matthew's gospel, they would be familiar with these things. They would see this right away. So why does it matter to us now? Well, it matters because it affects how we read the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Even even well-meaning Protestant Christians will read the Beatitudes like this. If I am poor in spirit... And if I am mournful, and if I am meek, and if I try to be righteous and merciful and sincere, and if I'm a peacemaker, and if I let people persecute me, then I will receive all these good things from God. The kingdom, comfort, the earth, satisfaction, mercy, all these good things. But if you read the Beatitudes that way, you miss Jesus. And the Beatitudes understood rightly are about him. They're about Jesus Christ. So so Jesus is doing two things for us here in, in the way that he's introducing his teaching to us. He's saying, I am the one. I'm the one who fulfills the promises of the coming Christ. That's why he's alluding to Isaiah 61. In Psalm 37, in Psalm 24. He is the anointed one of the Lord. He is the one who ascends the holy hill. He is the one who brings righteousness. 
But he's also saying this. He's saying, I'm the king bringing the perfect heavenly kingdom to you. I am the one who brings comfort to those who mourn. I am the one who will inherit the earth and give you my inheritance. I am the one who gives satisfaction. I'm the one who shows mercy. I am the God you get to see. I'm the one who will make you sons of God. I am the one who is righteous. You see what he's doing? And he says, I'm the reason why the world will persecute you. Because following me means you are no longer a citizen of the world. You're a citizen of my kingdom, and the world is opposed to my kingdom. Never, ever, ever read any of Jesus' teachings as if they could possibly be understood without him. He is not just a man full of good ideas, church. Jesus is the good idea. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these past promises. That's what he's showing us. But there's also, I told you, a past, present, and a future element to the Beatitudes. There's also very much a a present element to what is being taught here. And this works best with your Bibles open, so make sure you've got them open. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the is? It's it's present tense. Theirs is right now in the present, the kingdom of heaven. And then if you look all the way down in verse 10, you see the same thing. Verse 10 is the same way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is again it's present tense right now they possess they are living in the kingdom of heaven so verse 3 and verse 10 are are bookends to this teaching what we call the an inclusio they're they're bread pieces that include everything else in the sandwich now the sandwich the stuff in the middle verses 4 through 9 they all talk about the future stuff it's a future sandwich Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Shall be. If you're using the NIV, it says will be. They will be comforted. It's in the future. The reward isn't here yet. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Shall, will, future. You see that? Look at the rest of the sandwich. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. It's the future. But in the present, in the present, Jesus is talking to those who have, who, who possess the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are for Christians disciples of Christ followers of Christ verse 1 tells us this doesn't it look back at verse 1 he went up on the mount and when he sat down his disciples came to him and in verse 2 he opened his mouth and taught them who them which them the disciples his followers the disciples of Christ are those who are citizens of the kingdom already They are the ones receiving his teaching. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the way Jesus puts it. Do you remember when we were studying Colossians together as a church? If you're visiting here, you can go back and listen to these. But we saw something interesting. In Colossians 1.13, Paul told us that God had delivered us, Christians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, and I do that every, this way every time, transferred us, picked us like the claw, picked us up, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Where? Kingdom. The kingdom of his beloved son. Those who follow Christ as Lord and King are those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. And that's very much a future kingdom. But it's already been inaugurated in the present. Right now, we can live as citizens of that kingdom even while we're living here on earth as sojourners, as wanderers, as people that don't belong here. If you claim to be a Christian, if your redemption is in Christ and your sins have been forgiven in Christ, then you are a citizen of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 2.6 says that already you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Already. You live on the earth, but you live according to heaven's values. Your outlook is heavenward. When you look out, you see heaven in front of you. Maybe way in the distance, but it's there. The core of who you are is in Christ who is in heaven. It's not here. We don't belong here. So we should be different. We should seem like foreigners here. Living according to these values that Jesus gives us. That should make us seem even stranger than the reality that we already know. At the same time, Jesus is saying that despite our strangeness in embracing mourning and meekness and mercy and so forth, he's saying with all of those values that you have that you can embrace, you still flourish. You're still happy. You still are in a state of bliss. We can be truly and deeply happy in the present as we look forward to the coming kingdom. That's the point of of all of this. That's what I mean by the present. Well, how do we do this? Well, the flourishing of the heavenly citizen is not disconnected from the future. One of the strangest things about being a Christian is that our hope is not in the now. It's not in the present. We are content. We can be happy in the present because of the unseen realities that we're looking forward to. That's what's so different about Jesus' kingdom. Well, how does the world think? What's the wisdom of the world? What is the world's approach? Fight for what you want now. Use whatever means necessary to get what you want when? Now. Be forceful. 
be manipulative, whine, yell, pout, be deceitful, put others down, show strength, show power, all to get pleasure, to gain more influence, to make more money. Do all that you can now to get what you want now because now is all there is. But Christians, people who say ours is the kingdom of heaven, we're not looking to this moment. We're not even looking to this age for, for our source of, of fulfillment or well-being. We saw that also when we studied Colossians. Isn't it amazing how God's word is so consistent with itself? In Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul's echoing Jesus. That's all he's doing. Jesus is saying our mindedness, our hopes, what we dwell on, it's ahead of us. It's in the coming kingdom. What we're expecting there in faith is what affects our sense of well-being now as we live as citizens of that future kingdom. Well, let's examine then how to live and be happy now as we anticipate that future And just a reminder as we look at this truth, I've mentioned this already, but that word blessed, blessed, our Bibles use, that is just a state of being happy or or blissful. It's not like do this and you will receive a blessing. Don't think of it that way. That that totally misses the point. It's It's more along the lines of you can be in a state of bliss now or in a state of happiness now because of the citizenship you have in heaven now. That was verses 3 and 10. And because of what you're anticipating in the future. That's verses 4 through 9. Do you see that distinction there? That word blessed, the only reason we have that in our Bibles is because of the King James Bible. They first used that word in 1611 and we just stuck with it. But that word has morphed in its meaning to us. We have hashtag blessed now, which they didn't have in 1611. <laughs> so think of it as happiness or, or blissful, and that will help you understand better the logic here. So here's how a more literal translation that follows Jesus' logic w- w- would go. Look at verse 3 with me. The, the poor in spirit are in a state of happiness. They are blessed because they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. All right, that was the present tense. Poor in spirit. You see how this works? That word for has the sense of because. The the Beatitudes aren't if-then statements. They're more like this is true because of statements. Look, let's look at the ones that involve this anticipation then. Look at verse four. Those who mourn are in a state of happiness because they know they will be comforted. You see how that works? They know they will be. The mourning that Jesus is talking about isn't just a general state of eeyore, sadness. The mourning is a recognition that things are not as they should be, but they will be. The mourning is a longing for the future kingdom. He's saying we can be deeply happy 
even in our mourning right now because we know that Christ is returning. We know that things will be made right. It's tied closely to persecution, isn't it? When you're persecuted because of your faith in Christ, you'll mourn, but you can be deeply happy. You can be satisfied knowing that things will one day be made right because you're looking forward to the coming kingdom. Verse 5. The meek are happy because they know they shall inherit the earth. So as citizens of Christ's kingdom now, we live meekly. We live humbly. It doesn't mean that we are weak. It doesn't mean we are powerless. It means we don't insist on showing our strength. We don't insist on being in control. We're content to let Christ's future rule over the entire earth be our hope. We can be content being meek. Jesus is going to rule. Through Jesus, we are going to inherit the entire earth with him. This is the anti-control freak beatitude. Our, our enjoyment is tied to God's glory, not ours. Our hope is in a future kingdom, not in any present kingdom that we try to form around us, no matter how big or how small it is. Look at the, the next one, verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are happy now because they know their ultimate satisfaction is in the future. They shall be satisfied. Do you remember? Think back to Jesus' desert temptation for a moment. Jesus is there in the desert. He's hungry. Satan says, turn some rocks into bread. And he told Satan he didn't need food because he's being fed by the word of God. His desire was to live in obedience to God. His hunger was for righteousness. Jesus here is contrasting the world's desires to hunger and thirst for food and drink to find pleasure in this life now. And he's contrasting that with a kingdom ethic where our satisfaction isn't in immediate fulfillment. It's in what God has in store for the future. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means we are striving for something that we won't get in this life. The hunger will not be satisfied in this life. But it will be satisfied. It, it will be satisfied when we meet Jesus, our righteousness, face to face. He's ultimately the one that we're seeking when we have this deep desire, this hunger, this thirst for righteousness. In verse 7, those who show mercy are happy now because they know they will be shown mercy later. Now, there is a mercy that's already been shown to us, isn't there? Christ has been given to us, for one. That's a mercy. We've already received mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our, our new birth. Remember we talk about Christians being born again. Our new birth, our having been transferred, to use Colossians language, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of Christ, that's a mercy. 
And that's already happened for us. It's a present mercy. But there is a future mercy too. It's why Jesus uses the word shall. We read about this future mercy in the book of Jude. Not one you look to very often. But in Jude 21, the writer tells us, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now he's writing to Christians. And yet he tells them, wait on the mercy that leads to eternal life. We haven't just received mercy. We're also waiting on mercy. We're looking forward to the future mercy that God will show us. Though we are in Christ now, though we are forgiven now, we're still waiting on Christ's return and the future fulfillment of his kingdom. We wait with a hope, too. We wait with with expectation. We wait with faith that we belong to that kingdom. And we are saved in that faith. But that faith is not realized. It doesn't become sight until Christ returns and the kingdom is seen. And we, according to the mercy that will be shown to us on that day, are included in that kingdom. So now, because of the mercy that we will be shown, we wait with faith and we can show mercy to others. We can give others what they don't deserve. We are freed by God's mercy to give others when they have need, to give to others when when they have need. We'll do that today with our benevolence giving. We're free to show love to the unlovable. And more importantly, we're free to forgive, aren't we? That is the ultimate act of mercy, to show forgiveness. Forgiveness is ultimately the mercy that God is showing us, and that enables us to forgive others. In the world's ethic, though, in the way that the world does things, not forgiving someone gives you power over them. Did you know that? Gives you power over them. That's why we like not forgiving so much. You, you can inflict punishment on them. And you can lord it over them. They owe a debt to you, and you can hold on to that debt as long as you like. What happens when somebody sins against you? But belonging to Christ's kingdom gives us hope in God's mercy. And having a hope in God's mercy is not compatible with a lack of forgiveness now. It's not compatible. We don't need to feel the power over someone else that not forgiving them gives to us. Those who breathe the air of the kingdom of heaven don't crave the air of self-righteousness. Withholding forgiveness is not at all satisfying to the Christian. Not at all. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we can happily show mercy, mercy instead of a grudge because there is a future mercy coming our way and we know it. We know it because that future mercy has been guaranteed 
in Christ's crucifixion. So we cling to the cross and we show mercy to others. Verse 8. Those with pure hearts are happy because they will see God. Now there's a problem with this one. We can't get pure hearts. We can't imitate pure hearts. We can't manufacture them. We cannot clean our own heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? What's he implying? Nobody. Nobody can say that. The answer is no one. A pure heart is one that has been cleansed by Christ. Hebrews 10.22 says, We can enter into the presence of God because we have been washed. Most importantly, our hearts have been washed by the blood of Christ. He renews us. He restores us. He gives us the pure heart that we need to be in the presence of God. And in Him, we can approach God. We will see God. Now, for the non-Christian here, and I, uh, as a church, we gather as Christians and we welcome in non-Christians. But this thing, this pure heart, is impossible for you to accomplish on your own. You can show mercy. You can seek to be righteous. You can be meek. You can mourn. You can even be persecuted. Even for Jesus' name. You can pretend in so many ways that you are a kingdom citizen and walk right alongside the true church of Christ. But you cannot make your heart pure. If if you're not a Christian, whether you don't normally gather with the church at all, or if you've been coming to church your whole life and just faking it, you're not a Christian because your heart is bent against God. It's impure. No amount of striving can change the fact that the deepest motives of your heart are self-seeking and self-pleasing. So then, what do we do? Right? I can't make my heart pure. I want to follow Christ sincerely. What do I do? How do you receive Christ? Well, it goes back to verse 3. How did Jesus begin this? Poor in spirit. They're the ones who inherit the kingdom. They're the ones who for whom the kingdom belongs. You have to be poor in spirit. That means admitting that you can't make your heart pure. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so you let him. Receive the forgiveness that is available in Christ. Receive the cleansing that he's already provided. Let him be the one who brings you into God's presence. You and I cannot get there. Only he can make the way. Let him give you his life so that you can approach God in him. Be poor in spirit. Well, the last of these shall verses, verse 9. The peacemakers are happy because they know that they shall be called sons of God. Notice that Jesus says peacemakers. He doesn't say peacekeepers, does he? Peacemakers. He's not talking about those who avoid conflict and just keep warring parties separated from one another. Peacemakers go into the conflict, give of themselves, that they sacrifice their own well-being in order to seek reconciliation. Peacemakers 
are sons of God because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the first peacemaker. Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2 tells us that we who were far off, that's us, who were alienated from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ has brought us peace with God. But he's also brought another peace. He brings peace where there was hostility. When people who are enemies in the world enter into Christ, they become one new man in Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles, for instance. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. You couldn't even eat with one another at the same table. They're brought together as one new body, one new man in Christ. Jesus brings peace between them. Our churches should reflect this reality. The outside world should look at our church and say, none of y'all belong together. <laughs> they, there should be young and old worshiping together in the church of Christ. Rich and poor. Hatfields and McCoys. Black, brown, tan, white. It, it's God's desire that in the church of Christ, a whole bunch of people who have no business being together in the same room are worshiping him as one body because the blood of Jesus Christ has been poured out for them. The one who is our peace has brought us together. Together we know that we are brothers and sisters looking forward to our Father saying to us, you're my son. You're my daughter. That's what we look forward to. That's our hope. That's our expectation as kingdom citizens. So now, while we wait, we seek to bring peace between parties by showing them our peace, Jesus Christ. We show them Christ in his gospel. We show the effects of Christ's work in our lives. And our hope is that as they receive Christ, those who are opposed to one another will become brothers. They'll become one new body together in Christ. See, the, the call to be peacemakers, and I think we've misunderstood this, it's not a generic call to be counselors. It's a call to be evangelists who call people to Jesus Christ. The, these are all of the things that we right now embrace. We've just looked at all of them as sojourners in a foreign land. People who don't belong to the world that we live in. All that Jesus has just taught us are very different different ideas than the world has. To seek to bring enemies together into Christ, that's not a worldly virtue. To have no hidden motives in our hearts that does not get you ahead in the world. It does not lead to success. To show mercy is not a worldly good. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be meek, to mourn, none of those are virtues of the world, the here and now, because they don't get you anything now. These things, are, they just lead to persecution and alienation, reviling, as Jesus calls it. Jesus knows this. He's not accidentally introducing a whole set of virtues that end up to get us killed. He's doing this knowing it will lead to persecution. Eventually, we're going to, to add to all of this that he's just told us and he's going to say, to follow me, 
you've also got to take up your own cross. So right now, he's just preparing us for that reality, isn't he? He's teaching us how to die to ourselves by giving us these virtues to live by. But the warning is here now. Be ready to die. Because already you are behind enemy lines. And, and when you act the way that Jesus has called you to act, the enemy is going to know they're not on our team. Be ready to be persecuted and be happy, he says. Be happy knowing that, that your persecution is further evidence that your citizenship is, is elsewhere. It's, it's assurance, blessed assurance, persecution is mine. Look, look at what he says in verse 10. Blessed or, or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who belong to Christ's kingdom. In the here and now, there is the kingdom of heaven. And they know that. So they are happy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they're happy even in the midst of persecution. In verse 11 and 12, Jesus kind of reframes this. It's not righteousness this time. It's, it's him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely even on my account. Why? Because you're part of his kingdom. And you're living in the world. And so they know you're one of them. You're one of his. And they won't tolerate it. He says, as a result, we should rejoice and be glad. When that happens, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets who didn't belong to the kingdoms they lived in, who belonged to God's kingdom, were persecuted for being a part of God's kingdom and speaking God's words to those around them. And we should expect the same thing that they got. Rejoice and be glad, even in the midst of persecution, because our reward is great in heaven. The, the world seeks a reward that is now in this life so when things don't go wrong and it feels like they're being persecuted it looks like there is no reward for their investment and so it leads to trouble it leads to despair it leads to anxiety it leads to hopelessness suicide goes up when the stock market goes down but the Christian the citizen of heaven knows that there is a greater reward we will happily exchange this life for the next. We'll take the narrow road instead of the broad highway. We'll take up our cross to follow Christ because we know that this life is not all there is. And how do we know that? Do you know why we can be so confident in this hope? Because when our Savior died, he was raised up. We have assurance in a kingdom that we're hoping for. We have a deep conviction in the reality of that unseen kingdom because Jesus Christ was resurrected. And he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. We can understand the Beatitudes because we understand the resurrection. If he wasn't raised, 
then all of this stuff is nonsense. Why bother listening to any of this if it just leads to persecution and poverty and meekness? Why miss out on all of the pleasure that we could have in this life? Eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up now. Live for yourself now. Don't bother being a peacemaker. Who cares? That slows you down. Don't bother with mercy or mourning or righteousness. Take a hold of all you can grasp now because that's all there is, right? If Jesus just taught this stuff and then he died, he was just another philosopher that's not worth listening to. But if Jesus Christ has been raised, and he has been raised, amen? Then, then he has verified all that he's told us. And there is a hope that is greater than anything in this world has, anything the world has to offer. We can live in joy as citizens of his kingdom even now, even while we wait for the unseen kingdom to arrive because he's been raised. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice knowing that our hope is true. That as we strive to be like our Savior and your Holy Spirit transforms us day by day to put to death the things of the world and to live more and more and more for the things that are ahead of us in Jesus Christ, those things that are secure, those things that are eternal. Guys, we do that. We need reminders from you daily that this is worth it. Because we will so easily, so quickly fall back to a worldly short-sighted vision. So would you help us as a church to help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to look forward to Jesus Christ and his return. To live as if we are citizens of the kingdom that he's already brought in to the earth. Because we are. Remind us through whatever, whatever means you need, Father, that we are citizens of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.